In just a few minutes, we'll be reading from verses 1 through 5 together. Have you ever been asked to describe something that you knew would be difficult to describe? Sometimes it can be difficult to put things into words, like trying to describe a sunrise over the ocean or the look of the Grand Canyon for the first time as the sun rises, or describe fully and completely as you observe the birth of your child. Try and put that into words. The following are actual lines from high school history students who tried to describe something of history, but had a little trouble with some of the facts. I suppose you could call this bloopers. The first is this. The inhabitants of Egypt were called mummies. They lived in the desert and traveled by Camelot. The Egyptians built the pyramids in the shape of a huge triangular cube. The pyramids were a range of mountains between France and Spain. Second one. Without the Greeks, we wouldn't have history. Being a Greek, I agree. What's wrong with that? The Greeks invented three kinds of columns, Corinthian, Doric, and Ironic. They also had myths. A myth is a female moth. One myth says that the mother of Achilles dipped him in the river stinks until he became intolerable. Thirdly, during the Renaissance, America began. Christopher Columbus was a great navigator who discovered America while cursing about the Atlantic. His ships were called the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Fe. Later, the pilgrims crossed the ocean, and the crossing was called the Pilgrim's Progress. When they landed at Plymouth Rock, they were greeted by Indians who came down the hill rolling their hoops before them. And the Indian squabs carried porpoises on their back. And lastly, just because I couldn't resist, delegates from the original 13 states formed the Contented Congress. Thomas Jefferson, a virgin, and Benjamin Franklin were two singers of the Declaration of Independence. (laughs) Franklin had gone to Boston, carrying all his clothes in his pocket and a loaf of bread under each arm. He invented electricity by rubbing cats backwards and declared, a horse divided against itself cannot stand. Franklin died in 1790 and is still dead. Suffice it to say, some of the students had a little difficulty describing some key points in history. Good effort, but perhaps they did not get the concept just quite right. Well, as we approach this text, we presented with one of the most significant concepts in the New Testament as relates to becoming a Christian. And it's the concept of grace. And as I read 
and studied this week, I struggled with how does one present such a truth? How does one take an ocean of truth and put it into a cup of a sermon? And I presented that to Matthew, and he said, well, you do it cup by cup. And he's right. The title of today's message, and I coined this in light of our week of run of election primaries, the title is Living as Blood-Bought Gracians. Living as Blood-Bought Gracians. Part one, the bad news. As I prepared the message, I thought, okay, I'm going to get through verses 1 through 10. And then as I dove into verses 1 through 10, I said, no way am I getting through all of that. So we're going to break it into two parts. We'll go through verses 1 through 5 this week, and then verses 6 through 10 next week. Also, as I prepared this message, I found myself with mixed emotions. First of all, incredible joy. Incredible joy as I found myself studying what we have as our inheritance in Christ. Paul talks about in the beginning of this book, in chapter 1, that grace and the inheritance and the gifts of God have been not just given to us, but lavished upon us. Lavished upon us. And as I studied with the, this material, I was just overcome with joy on the gifts that we've been given. It's true for anyone who embraces Christ. But at the same time, I struggled with severe sadness for those who are outside of Christ, those who remain outside the faith. I also better understand and see why the Apostle Paul in the previous chapter prays that God may give us revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. Grace is one of the most massive and significant concepts in the New Testament and in also the Christian life. It's a theme which the Apostle Paul presents in all his letters, not just the one in Ephesians. Moreover, and perhaps more significantly, it's the concept, along with truth, that inaugurates and defines the ministry of Christ. In John chapter 1, we read, We have seen his glory, glory as the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. So it's a significant topic. And remember, the Apostle Paul isn't speaking to non-believers here. He's speaking to Christians, Christians who have experienced, like us, the grace of God. And yet he's praying that our eyes would be opened to the truth of this grace. So as we begin this morning, I'm going to use that backdrop as our prayer. Ephesians chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 5, if you'll read along with me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that as the Apostle Paul prayed, you would open our eyes to the truth of your work, to the truth of what has been done through the work of Christ. Father, open our eyes that we might see what is our inheritance. Father, I ask that you would walk among us by your Spirit. Walk through the aisles of this congregation. Touch hearts. Open eyes. Encourage us in the truth of the gift of your grace. We ask for your name's sake. Amen. Well, if you had to write your testimony as to who you were before coming to Christ, how would you describe it? What would you say? What was your testimony? What would you put on your BC resume? Perhaps it might include something that you're not too proud of. Perhaps it might be something that you are very ashamed of. Perhaps it might be something that you think, well, I wasn't too heinous or horrible, didn't kill anybody. I was just distant from God, didn't give him much thought. I was living my own life. Well, it might surprise you that along with your resume of what your life was before, God has a resume of what your life was before and what my life was before. Now, the Apostle Paul in this scripture eventually has some very, very good news for us. And eventually, we will get to that good news next week. But before he tells us the good news, he speaks about the bad news and the news about who we were outside of union with Christ. I need to put a little context to where we're headed. First of all, these three verses that we're going to look at, verses 1 through 3, are hard to hear. They're hard to speak about. No preacher has fun talking about these things that we're going to talk about. But secondly, we need to remember that it's a form of comparison. Paul is taking the bad news and he's comparing it with good news. He does it kind of like a jeweler. If you go into a jewelry store and he's going to show you a beautiful diamond, he'll take that diamond and he'll put it on a black cloth to show contrast. The Apostle Paul is using that as comparison, the good news and the bad news. But thirdly, it's not just comparison. What we're going to read is a clear declaration 
from God's perspective as to who we were before coming to Christ. Someone said one time that God really has this problem. He thinks he's God. And the earth, he thinks, is all about him. And the truth of the matter is, it is. And the Bible is about primarily God, and it's written from his perspective. We're going to read from God's perspective what he says about those who are outside of Christ. Paul is seeking by this to speak to Christians, to have our eyes opened so that it will cultivate ultimately gratefulness in us. I believe as we go through these, these verses and next verse, what God is seeking to do, what is supposed to take place in our hearts, is that as we study the grace of Christ, it would and should cultivate gratefulness in our hearts that we have been rescued from death. Again, let me say that. As we study the grace that we see through Christ, it should cultivate gratefulness in our hearts that we've been rescued from death. So the points that I'm going to make today, three points, according to this passage, what we were before coming to Christ, what we were before coming to Christ. The first is we were dead in trespasses and sins. The second, we were following the course of this world and the devil. And thirdly, we were children of wrath. Point number one, before faith in Christ, Scripture teaches that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1, if you'll look there with me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. You were dead. We were dead. Scripture teaches that outside of union with Christ, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, he's obviously not speaking about a physical death, but he, because he goes on and he talks about the fact that they were walking and living He's talking about a spiritual death, a spiritual death. And that spiritual death involves separation from God. So let's remember how that originally took place. If you turn back to the book of Genesis, if you hold your finger here and take a look back in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man, Adam, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's God's statement. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Fast forward to verse 8. Adam and Eve took the apple. They ate. Their eyes were open. They knew that they were naked. And they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. 
Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. That call from God to Adam, Adam, where are you? Don't mistake that God didn't know where Adam was. There wasn't too many people on the face of the earth that God had to find. God knew where they were, but something spiritually took place. There was a separation between Adam and God, a significant separation. From that point, sin entered the world. And a vital, life-giving union between mankind and God was severed. Tragically severed. And the distance between God and man could not be greater. So if we were dead in trespasses and sins, I'm not a doctor, but dead people typically don't just get up and give themselves medicine. Dead people don't just plug in an IV. Dead people have no hope of somehow saving themselves. A corpse in the morgue doesn't do anything to change his status. If we were dead, we have no hope of saving ourselves. That's bad news. All that to add to, folks, self-help programs, positive thinking, meditation alone, therefore, cannot give us spiritual life. Not that those are bad in themselves, but they don't give us salvation. Likewise, simply trying harder to be a good person cannot give us spiritual life. That's kind of like making a three-egg omelet. Two of the eggs are good, one of them's bad, or maybe three eggs are bad. Would you want to eat the omelet? Our good works that we try and do to save ourselves are laced with sin, which is offensive to God. We don't have the power to give ourselves that. Only the Holy Spirit breathing on our souls, speaking to the word of God that's been presented to us, can give us new life in Christ. That's why it is so exciting and so critical to be able to share the word of Christ with people. Because we aren't responsible to make it come to life. We're just responsible to share it. To go to the orphanage. To share with the children. Or to go across the aisle to the co-worker. Or to share with a student about Christ. And it doesn't have to be a perfect presentation. It can be something as simple as You know what I was, and you know what I've become, very imperfect. But I have a relationship with God through Christ. You do? How did you get that? What do you take? What's your medicine? No, it's him. It's him. The dependence is not upon us to change people's hearts. But we are called to share. We are called to share what God has done to us. 
So let me ask this. Has the work of new life been wrought in you? Do you have a life-giving relationship with Christ? If you do, you've received an incredible, immeasurably great gift. Moreover, all of your future has been defined. It's tough to get our minds around the fact that we were separated from God and now we've been brought in union to him. But if that has happened, if you've been given faith in Christ, you are now in union with him, your life is defined, you have purpose, and you have calling. Amen? Secondly, before faith in Christ, we were following the course of this world and the devil. Following the course of this world and the devil. Ephesians 2.2 says, We were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Prior to Christ, the Bible says that we were part of another kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, ruled by a lesser ruler. Nonetheless, there is a ruler. I don't necessarily... Mind talking about the devil, provided you speak about him in rightful terms. He is not God's equal. He is far less. He does exist. And one of the things that he would love to do is have Christians believe he doesn't. Love that. That's one of the best ways to um, hide what you're trying to do. If you've never read through the book of the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, I encourage you to do it. He talks about the work of the enemy in a great literary way that speaks about how he seeks to clandestinely operate among Christians. He's not too worried about those who aren't fighting for the kingdom of God. He'll let them be. But once you become a Christian... There seems to be an onslaught against you as you try and fight the fight of faith. We are in a fight because there is an enemy. But before we became part of the kingdom of light, the Bible says we were enslaved. Enslaved to the ways of the world. Enslaved to the thinking of the world. Influenced by the power of the enemy. I don't know what your background was, but before you became a Christian, there was something about the way that you thought, the goals that you had, your vision that aligned itself with the power of the devil. Now, what takes place, and we will talk about that later next week, is that when you become a Christian, you don't just get new thinking. You get new identity. You go from one kingdom into another kingdom. You go from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. And the passport between the two, you don't just buy at Walmart. It has to be given to you by a holy God. Before we come to faith in Christ, there is an... There's a slavery, and those are tough words to say. 
We follow that. We follow those principles. And yet God has given us as Christians a wonderful gift. Just in passing, we are told, do not love the world. Romans 12.2 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Passing, I should be remiss, I would be remiss if I said, don't take your opinions from the world. We get our opinions from God's word and how subtle it can be to influence, influence us when we take our opinions from just the world around us. Point number three, before faith in Christ, we were considered children of wrath. Look at verse three, please. Before faith in Christ, we were considered children of wrath. The wrath of God, not a pleasant thing to speak about. And again, a note of caution here. We must remember that Paul's not using this text to speak to non-believers. He's not using this text to beat them on the head to say, you are under the wrath of God. He's saying to Christians, you were under the wrath of God and therefore it should cultivate gratefulness in your heart. Having said that, Scripture teaches, before we became children of God, we weren't just separated from God. We weren't just in another camp. We were enemies of God, enemies of God. The wrath of God was upon us. It's a tough blow, tough blow to the philosophy that holds that God is just friends and favors all humanity equally. That's just not biblically true. What's biblically true is that if you are outside of faith in Christ, the wrath of God remains upon you. That's sad. There are people that you will interact with and I will interact with this week upon whom the wrath of God rests. It's important that we define what the wrath of God means. First of all, it's not like human wrath. It's not just uncontrolled, unbridled anger. It's not just emotional. God doesn't just fly off the handle in anger. It's not some wild act of retribution by an egotistical dictator, as some would want to purport. And it's not separate from his mercy and love. They're held perfectly together. The wrath of God is a measured holy anger against sin and the perfect judgment that comes because of it. It's a judgment for sin for all those who have sinned, all those who rebelled against God's law, God's rules, His commands, and have violated His glory and honor. It's really about God's honor. In order to maintain his glory, 
in order to maintain his holiness as a perfect and just God, he must punish sin. If I just sinned three times a day, oh Lord, give me that one day. But if I just sinned three times a day, at the course of the end of the year, that would be a thousand sins, more or less. At the course of 10 years, that's 10,000 sins. Now let's just take a minor crime, like a parking ticket. If I brought 10,000 parking tickets and I put them on top of a judge's bench, and I said, can you just push those away? Just wash them away, just forget them, just forget about them. For the judge to do that and just wash them away would be a miscarriage, gross miscarriage of justice. Couldn't be done. Not and call that judge just. Now, I don't know how old you are. I don't know how many times you've sinned today. But outside of Christ, our sins are before God. And they're an offense to him. He must, if he is going to punish sin, punish the sinner who does that. He must. Before we became Christians, there was a sense of foreboding, perhaps. But God had to punish sin. That's bad news. That's really bad news. Last thing to say about this wrath. It says we were children of wrath. That means we're born with this. It's not something that we just do. We sin because we're sinners. We're born in it. So to recap, we're dead in trespasses and sins, number one. Number two, we're under the power of the enemy and enslaved. And number three, we're by very nature who we are, children of wrath. In summary, we're enemies of God with nothing about us that's worthy of God's blessing, love, or favor. That's not easy to talk about. That's not easy to think about. I don't like to be told that's who I was. There was a great chasm, great chasm between God and man without any hope of me saving myself. Thank God that's not the end of the story. Thank God that's not the end of the story. Thank God there's more. There's good news. We're going to talk about good news. But brothers and sisters, we must keep in mind Number one, we must be grateful. We must seek to study this so that it cultivates gratefulness in our hearts. And number two, we must remember with great sympathy and compassion those who are outside of faith in Christ. We were God's enemies. But verse four, and we'll expand on this next week, so come back. But God 
being rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. What do you call it when you affect positively the life of people who are your enemies for which they should be punished? I don't get that. I don't understand that. That still blows my mind. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. When I was at my worst, he said, here it is. Come follow me. What do I have to do? What good deeds do I have to do? Nothing. No, hang on. You've got to do something. What do you have to do? Nothing. Receive it. How do you receive that gift? By faith. Where do I get the faith? It's a gift given to you as well? <laughs> That's too good a news. That's why it's called the gospel which in the Greek, euangelion, means good news. It's good news. Need it daily. There was a great chasm. It's been broached by God. We were dead in our trespasses, and God made us alive. The most significant event in your life as a Christian are in these verses in 4 and 5. God intervened, brought you into union with Christ. It's an amazing truth. Because Christ conquered sin and death, because he overcame the power of death, because he displayed his victorious resurrection, we've brought into union, been brought into union with him. It's a living, victorious union, never to go away. Herein is life. Herein is life. Amen. Thank God for his amazing life and gift to us. Now in a crowd this size, I would be remiss if I did not mention there may be folks here who are not part of the were. The word doesn't apply. You may be in the category where you are still outside of faith in Christ. Maybe you are living according to the course of this world. Maybe you are enslaved to sin. Maybe you are living in a way, and you know it, that is offensive to God, and you're running from him. If you are here and you are not a believer, if you're unsure of your relationship with Christ, there is bad news that unfortunately applies to you. You remain, biblically speaking, under the judgment of God. There is a penalty that must be paid. There is a debt. You have nothing to pay that debt for. You never will before a holy God. That's bad news. But I want to invite you to hear the good news that this very day you can experience forgiveness and the favor 
of God, the full favor of God. If you will open up your heart and by faith place your trust and belief in Christ. If you are here and that is a thought of your heart that I should place my faith in Christ. There's only one reason that thought is there and that's because the Holy Spirit of God right now is working upon your heart to bring you that way. And I encourage you to consider that. If that's something that you would consider to talk more about, God is only a prayer away. There are many people here that would talk with you, pray with you. Please consider that. As I close, closing thought. Living as blood-bought Gracians requires that we wrestle with the truth of who we were, as difficult and uncomfortable as that might be. I believe as we understand more and more the slavery from which we were bought, the death from which we were brought, it will cause compelling love in our heart. It will cause compelling gratefulness in our heart. It will cause humility and love for God in our heart and ultimately bring us to a place where we bring him glory. How can anyone having looked at what they were and now what they are, have anything but gratefulness in their heart for God. The grace that saves us cultivates that gratefulness. I want to close with a prayer from the Valley of Vision. So pray with me. Lord, no day of my life has passed that has not proved me guilty in thy sight. Prayers have been uttered from a prayerless heart. Praise has been often praiseless sound. My best services are filthy rags. Blessed Jesus, Let me find a covert in thy appeasing wounds. Though my sins rise to heaven, thy merits soar above them. Though unrighteousness weighs me down to hell, thy righteousness exalts me to thy throne. All things in me call for my rejection. All things in thee Plead my acceptance. I appeal from the throne of perfect justice to thy throne of boundless grace. Grant us to hear thy voice assuring us that by thy stripes we are healed, that thou wast bruised for our iniquities, that thou hast made sin for us, that I might be righteous in thee, that our grievous sins, our manifold sins, are all forgiven, buried in the ocean of your concealing blood. We are guilty, but pardoned, lost, but saved, 
wandering but found, sinning but cleansed. And so, Lord, give us perpetual brokenheartedness. Keep us always clinging to your cross. Flood us every moment with descending grace. Open to us the springs of divine knowledge, sparkling like crystal, flowing clear and unsullied through the wilderness of our lives.